Hello and welcome back to the Annette Castle podcast. I'm Daniel Watkins. And I'm Deborah Beecroft. And on today's episode, we're getting ready for Halloween and sharing some of the strangest, creepiest and most mysterious stories connected to Annette Castle. We are joined by two of our resident storytellers, Sean Kenny. Hello. And Melanie Dagg. Hello. Who will be reading these almost true tales of ghosts, vampires, suspicious deaths and phantom beards. You'll then hear from us to give you the facts behind the story and the parts that are still a mystery. Our first story will be told by Sean. It's a story of the night when the first Duchess of Northumberland travelled across Georgian London to see a ghost. The year was 1762, and London was captivated by the tale of a terrifying haunted house. The story begins three years earlier, close to Smithsfield Market, and a few minutes' walk away from St Paul's Cathedral. A man named William Kent had rented a room in the house for himself and his mistress, Frances Lines, when their ruthless landlord, the clerk Richard Parsons, borrowed money and failed to pay it back, William and Frances were ordered to move out, and before long she died of smallpox. Or did she? Let us return to 1762. Richard Parsons and his young daughter, Elizabeth, discovered that their house was now haunted by the terrifying ghost of William Kent's lover. Every night, Elizabeth would hear the sinister sounds of clawing and scratching on her bedroom furniture as the bells of St Paul's rang throughout the gloomy nights. Parsons claimed that Kent poisoned Frances with arsenic, and now she was condemned to spend eternity trapped within the rooms of her unhappy former home. News of the haunting quickly spread through the streets of London, and was reported in newspapers across the land. Seances were held to free Frances from her ghostly prison in Elizabeth's bedroom, and every night crowds from every part of Georgian society gathered at the house, hoping to hear the scratching sounds from beyond the grave. The whole of London was caught up in the sensation of the ghost, including Elizabeth Percy, the first Duchess of Northumberland, and the Lady of Annick Castle. One stormy night in January, she set out from the opera alongside the Duke of York, son of King George III, and the writer Horace Walpole. Their aim was to visit the ghost of Francis Lines. The rain was torrential as their coach sped through the city, and they squeezed into young Elizabeth Parsons' bedroom alongside fifty others, all waiting with bated breath for Francis to make her eerie presence known. There was no light but a lone candle flickering at the end of the chamber. The Duchess and her company waited in the insufferable heat and stench until after the bells had tolled one o'clock in the morning. But no ghost appeared. It was clear that no haunting would take place that night. The Duchess later recorded her thoughts on this chilling experience in her diaries, which I shall now read in full. Friday 29th, at Opera, and after, at Ghost. Thank you, Sean. 
It's now time for the truth. The ghost was a hoax. In fact, one of the most famous hoaxes of the entire Georgian era. It was led by the clerk, Richard Parsons, who wanted revenge on his former tenants. Parsons did run out of room to William Kent and Francis Lyons. Kent was a widower and Francis his late wife's sister, who was now his partner. Parsons did borrow money from Kent and failed to pay it back. Kent and Lyons moved out and she died soon after. This was probably a smallpox. Parsons did claim three years later that Francis's ghost was now haunting the house, scratching and clawing at the furniture. Supposedly, it was the ghost herself communicating through a Methodist preacher who claimed she'd been poisoned with arsenic. The story of the haunting was huge news in January 1762. A committee, including Dr Samuel Johnson, was even set up to investigate it. However, while there were curious crowds around the house each night, public opinion was already divided. Many already believed it was fraud. Horace Walpole was one of the more cynical witnesses to the ghost. In a letter, he described his journey to the house with the Duke of York, the Duchess of Northumberland, and two other aristocratic friends, and called it a farce. I shall not be surprised if they perform in the Great Hall at Lambeth. It is not an apparition, but an audition. The group had travelled from the opera to Northumberland House in central London, where they changed clothes before setting off in a coach. Walpole stated that it rained torrents, yet the lane was full of mob and the house so full we could not get in. When the crowd discovered the king's son was in the coach, they made room for the duchess's group. It's from Walpole that we know that the haunted room had 50 people in it, but just one candle. He also made note of the heat and stench there, and the important fact that the ghost did not appear. He said, we had nothing. They told us, as they would at a puppet show, that it would not come that night till seven in the morning. We stayed, however, till the half hour after one. The quote we heard from the Duchess of Northumberland's diaries, at opera and after at ghost, is all she said about the visit. We can probably assume she was not too impressed by the experience. By February 1762, after the investigative committee had gone to the lengths of opening Francis's coffin, the hoax was uncovered. Young Elizabeth Parsons had been making the scratching noises using pieces of wood hidden in her bedsheets, and had done so on her father Richard's instructions. William Kent was cleared of any suspicion, and Richard Parsons was found guilty of conspiracy. He was sentenced to two years' imprisonment and was pilloried three times. Public opinion, however, was still divided. There were deeper religious issues and controversies reflected in the story of the ghost. Methodists, like the preacher who had claimed to have communicated with Francis, believed in ghosts and the supernatural, while Anglicans believed in more rational thought and rejected the idea. For our second story, we go to Mel as we stay in the realm of the supernatural and hear the story of the Anic Vampire. For this story, we travel further back in time to hear about the undead menace that stalked the streets of the town of Anak 900 years ago. The tale was first told by the chronicler William of Newborough and begins with a man of bad life who served the lord of Anak Castle. He suspected his wife of adultery, but to prove it, he had to witness her infidelity. Claiming to be away from home, he hid in the rafters of their dwelling. When he saw her invite another man into their home, his seething rage built and built until, shaking uncontrollably with anger, he lost his grip and fell, crashing to the cold stone floor beneath. Cursing his wife, he lay mortally injured. A parish priest arrived to deliver the last rites, as was the custom for anyone on the brink of death. But the dying man of bad life refused that sacrament. 
During the long night that followed, he drew his last breath and succumbed to his injuries. He was given a funeral and a Christian burial in the nearby church, but he had died with his mortal sins unforgiven. He was unworthy. His tormented soul could not rest in peace. As darkness fell over Anik, evil rose from the man's grave, and the devil walked with earthly feet. His putrid corpse clawed his way out of the consecrated ground and began to walk through the town, with an appalling stench of death and corruption following. The infected air caused plague to spread amongst the townsfolk. Many fell ill. Many died. Those who escaped the pestilence fled Anik completely, leaving the town deserted. Two brave young Anik men set out to avenge their late father, who was one of the many that had fallen victim to this unnatural creature. On the sacred day of Palm Sunday, they went to the churchyard, opened up the man's grave and found his foul carcass covered with only a thin layer of earth. The shroud it lay beneath had been torn to shreds and the body itself was gorged, swollen with a frightful corpulence. The face was red from the consumption of human blood. It was a vampire. The two young men dragged the demonic corpse far away from holy ground and built a pyre through which they could destroy it forever. The blackened heart was torn from the vampire's chest and burned on the pyre. As the flames roared, the diseased air was cleansed and those suffering the curse of the Anic vampire were saved. People could return to the town, free to walk the streets without fear. For now. Thank you, Mel. And now, here's the truth behind the story. William of Newborough was a real 12th century chronicler who, among other achievements, compiled stories of otherworldly happenings around the kingdom, including that of the Anic Vampire. He was also married to Maud de Percy, daughter of the third Baron de Percy, and a member of the family that would go on to purchase Anic Castle two centuries later. If the man of bad life was a servant of the Lord of Anic Castle, he would have served a Lord of the de Vesey family, who were Barons of Anic at the time Newborough wrote his chronicle, we don't know where the man and his wife lived, but it is unlikely to have been within the castle walls. According to the chronicle, the man did suspect his wife of adultery, hide in the rafters of their dwelling, fall and die after refusing the last rites. Belief at the time was that a Christian burial could not be afforded to anyone who had not received the sacrament. The behaviour of the man after rising from the grave, which, according to Newborough, definitely happened, might seem closer to the modern idea of zombies than what we think of when we imagine vampires. Vampires as we think of them today are a relatively modern invention. The first modern vampire was arguably created by the writer John Polidori just over 200 years ago. In the medieval period, all creatures rising from the grave to prey on the living were considered revenants, and did have more in common with the mindless behaviour of zombies than the suave, cunning predators we picture when we often think of vampires. These two supernatural creatures share this common origin. Going back to William of Newborough's story... The Anic vampire was supposed to have been followed by an air of death and corruption as he walked through the town, and a plague did follow his appearances. Two men did dig up the grave on Palm Sunday, finding the shroud shredded and the body engorged with blood. Newbra's account contains a word in the medieval Latin that can be translated as bloodsucker. This is believed to be the first instance of this term being used in England. 
The men did cut out the vampire's heart and burn it, and the illnesses did stop afterwards. We'll leave it up to you whether you believe Nubra's Chronicle or think there might be a different explanation. For our third story, it's one of murder and mystery in Tudor, England. We return to Sean for the tale of the suspicious and unsolved death of Henry Percy, 8th Earl of Northumberland. There is little we know for certain about the mysterious death of Henry Percy, except to say that it was both swift and brutal. Henry became the 8th Earl of Northumberland in violent circumstances in 1572 when his brother Thomas was executed for treason by Elizabeth I. Henry swore to the Queen's court that he was no traitor, but suspicions lingered that the next Catholic plot to assassinate Elizabeth would still have the name Percy attached. Twice he was confined to the shadowy cells of the Tower of London, and twice he was released. The third time was not the charm for Henry, as this imprisonment would be his last. On one fateful night in 1585, the ravens of the Tower sat silent and immovable on the battlements, and gazed at the small window of the Eighth Earl's prison. Outside his door, the sudden sound of a gunshot was heard by a guard, followed by two anguished groans. It took some time to force the door open, and when eventually it was, Henry Percy's body was discovered. He had been shot through the heart. His blood spread slowly across his meagre bed, dripping onto the cold stone floor below and a small pistol was found lying nearby. The Queen's Court led an investigation into this cruel and unexpected death. They ruled that the Earl had died at his own hand. But many questions remained unanswered. How did someone, locked up in the realm's most secure fortress, acquire a gun? If Henry was shot in the heart, who made the noises heard by the guard? And why was it so difficult for them to gain entry to his room after the fact? Henry Percy had many enemies who would have been happy to spill Percy blood. One of them was Lord Burley, the most powerful courtier of the Elizabethan age, and a man who was prepared to remove any potential threat to his queen. Was Henry killed on Burley's orders? Was this really suicide, or was it murder? The blood of the Eighth Earl had long since dried, but the death remains unsolved, and mystery endures. What do you think? Thank you, Sean. And now, here's what we do know for sure. Henry Percy, who became Eighth Earl of Northumberland, had shown loyalty to Elizabeth I when his brother was leading a rebellion against her. If you'd like to hear more about this, we recommend going back to episode 41 of the podcast, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. He was first imprisoned in the Tower of London in 1571, the year before the 7th Earl's death by beheading, for being part of a conspiracy to break Mary Queen of Scots out of prison and help her escape England. He was released after 18 months and seems to have been forgiven by the Queen, who granted him the earldom, but those around Elizabeth still treated Percy with a level of suspicion. He was sent to the Tower again in the early 1580s after a plot against Elizabeth, known as the Throckmorton Plot, was discovered. 
No serious charges could be proved against him and he was released, but was soon arrested again for more suspected involvement in rebellion. His third and final spell in the tower began at the end of 1584. He was found dead in his cell six months later, shot through the heart with a small pistol called a dag lying nearby. Official reports stated that on the night he died, there was the sound of a shot, followed by two groans, and that the body was discovered after the door was forced open. The Earl's death was investigated, and the official verdict was that he had taken his own life. Even at the time, some people were sceptical about this, and questioned the reasoning behind the court's decision, as well as the presence of the dag in the cell. If Henry's death was murder by assassination, it seems reasonably likely that it was on the orders of Lord Burley, who was the most powerful member of Elizabeth's court, but there's no definitive answer as to whether he was murdered or whether his death was by suicide, and there probably never will be. We'll leave you to make your own mind up. We stay with the dead for our final story, which involves the long-dead body of a usurper king with connections to Anna Castle and the Percys. We go to Mel one last time for the exhumation of the tomb of Henry IV. There was perhaps no greater enemy to the medieval lords of Annick Castle than King Henry IV. Henry, who had overthrown King Richard II with the help of the Percys, soon turned on the family, who had been among his most loyal supporters. Harry Hotspur Percy led a rebellion against Henry and was killed in battle in 1403 when an arrow flew across the battlefield and pierced him through the eye. The king had Hotspur's corpse dug up and preserved with salt, then displayed between two millstones to demonstrate the barbaric strength of the royal army. The body was then beheaded and cut into four pieces, with the bloodied parts sent to the four corners of Henry's kingdom to show the realm the consequences of treason. Two days after the battle, Hotspur's uncle, Thomas, was publicly executed and his severed head spent six months rotting on a spike on London Bridge. Hotspur's father, the first Earl of Northumberland, continued to rebel, but by 1408 he had met a similar end. His head is said to have rotted on its spike for eight years. The Percys had fallen from kingmakers to oblivion. King Henry's remaining years saw his body and mind racked with guilt for the violent acts that had been required of him to secure the crown and to hold on to it. He succumbed to a disease some said was leprosy, a divine punishment for sins committed in life. Even in death he was alone, the only monarch buried at Canterbury Cathedral. Or was he? For centuries, many believed Henry's tomb at Canterbury to be empty, with the king's body instead having been thrown into the stormy sea. The gift of a royal body to the depths was said to have been a way to calm the tempestuous waters. The truth was not discovered until the 1830s, over 400 years later, when a society of learned antiquarians excavated the tomb and cut through Henry IV's lead-lined coffin. What they found was his perfectly preserved face, appearing no older than the day he had died centuries earlier. But within seconds, the king disintegrated before their eyes, and all that remained was his royal beard. The beard was removed by the society, and a section of it was cut off and sent to Annick Castle, 
as an offering on behalf of those who had lost their lives at King Henry's command. As the years went by, the location of King Henry IV's beard within the castle walls was lost. It remains a hair-raising mystery to this day. Thank you, Mel. Now we'll talk about whether long-dead Henry IV's beard did end up in Annick Castle. The Percy family were among the most notable supporters of Henry IV when he returned from exile in 1399. Hotspur, his father and his uncle were key to the plan to depose Richard II, but there is some doubt as to how much of that plan Hotspur was in on. The family were rewarded with honours and titles when Henry took the throne, but within a few years, Harry Hotspur had led his rebellion against the king and was killed in the Battle of Shrewsbury on 21st of July, 1403. It's true that Hotspur was buried near the battlefield, but then Henry had him exhumed and displayed between millstones. His body was quartered and shown across the kingdom as a warning to other rebels. Parts of Hotspur were sent to Newcastle, London, Bristol and Chester, while his head was displayed at York. Thomas Percy, Hotspur's uncle and Earl of Worcester, was executed shortly after Shrewsbury, and his father, the first Earl of Northumberland, was killed at the Battle of Branham Moor in 1408. Both their heads did end up on London Bridge, but it's said that when the Earls was finally taken down from its spike, it looked no more decomposed than when it was originally put up. As Henry IV's reign continued, he became more and more ill, which he himself is said to have attributed to divine punishment for his usurpation, as well as his dealings with rebels, notably the Archbishop of York, who rebelled in 1405. Henry died in the Jerusalem chamber at Westminster Abbey. He'd wished to die in Jerusalem itself, but this was as close as his health would allow. He was buried at Canterbury to be close to the Saint Thomas Becket. There was a superstition that the tomb at Canterbury did not contain the king's body. When this superstition originated is not completely clear, but it was certainly in place by the early 19th century. There were stories circulating that the body had been thrown into the sea by sailors to calm a storm which immediately worked. The Dean of Canterbury in the early decades of the 19th century was married to a Percy, though she wasn't part of the direct line of the Dukes of Northumberland. The Dean wanted to verify this story about Henry IV, so in the 1830s, the Society of Antiquaries excavated the tomb. It was lead-lined, so they cut through it. They did find King Henry's face perfectly preserved. However, the exposure to air meant, within seconds, the remains had disintegrated, leaving only the King's beard. The Society did cut a section of the beard. The amento was sent to the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland on behalf of Hotspur. The beard is supposedly still somewhere in the castle, though the castle's curators have conducted searches and have found no trace. We hope you've enjoyed hearing a few of our spooky stories and historical mysteries, as well as the facts behind them. Thank you very much to our storytellers, Sean and Mel, for bringing them to life. If you did enjoy the podcast, any positive ratings or reviews you can leave will be greatly appreciated. And if you've got anything you would like to know about Annick Castle, we're going to be answering your questions on our upcoming 50th episode, so please send them in by emailing podcast at annickcastle.com. We'll be back in two weeks when we'll be joined by a very special historical guest. Until then, I've been Deborah. And I've been Daniel. I've been Sean. And I've been Mel. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.